storage is fascinating. I think everyone recognizes it's going to be a part, an important part of the clean energy future. It feels like it's the next frontier. I think it is the next frontier. We see it in the headlines. Welcome to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast featuring conversations with leaders of the energy transition, hosted by Smart Energy Decisions founder, John Fiella. In each episode of Smart Energy Voices, John digs deep with industry movers and shakers to reveal insights you can learn from in their stories, personalities, and visions for the future. All right, let's dive in. Are you interested in sponsoring Smart Energy Voices? We are currently onboarding sponsors for our Season 2 programming. Check the show notes for details on packages. Hi, everyone. I'm John Fiella, and welcome to Smart Energy Voices. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. As we wrap up the year, I'm really excited to welcome Rob Collier, Vice President of Developer Relations at Level 10 Energy, to discuss his five predictions for the corporate renewable energy market in 2021, which is just upon us. With recent events and the election taking place, this is a great time to be focused on renewables, and I'm looking forward to discussing Rob's predictions with him. So, Rob, welcome to Smart Energy Voices. Yeah, John, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Rob, why don't we start by having you tell us a little a little about yourself and your role at Level 10 Energy? Yeah, certainly. So, I've been at Level 10 for about three and a half years now. Started in May 2017, and the company was a lot smaller at that time, but I actually began my career in climate and renewables going back to 2009. And I started in the, the nonprofit and the environmental policy sector, where I worked for three and a half years of climate change and energy policy at two different nonprofit organizations. And really, the mission of an organization has always been critical to me. For me, there's really no higher calling than the climate crisis, as well as the role that renewables can play in providing solutions to the climate crisis. And so, I worked at an organization called Environmental Defense Fund, was there for was about two and a half years, and then took a detour to complete an MBA at Cornell. And while I was there, I, I focused on sustainability and finance, and I really had the core purpose of, of taking my background in the environmental NGO space and bringing it into renewables development. That's where I saw rubber meeting the road, where projects were actually getting done. I wanted to get into that space because it's... It's how projects get built from the ground up. So while I was at business school, I did everything I could to get my foot in the door at development companies, you know, shamelessly self-promoting myself, independent studies, internships, externships, clubs, what have you. And I'll call it, I weaseled my way into a full-time gig at a solar developer called One Energy Renewables based here in Seattle and spent about four years as a boots on the ground developer in the PJM in New York markets. After about four years there, I made a jump to level 10, really to to broaden my experience. And I loved the idea of working at that nexus of clean energy and software to expand opportunities for a diverse array of of buyers to participate in in renewable energy. And I also knew Bryce Smith, level 10 CEO, from working with him 
at one energy. So really firmly believed in, in Bryce's vision and in level 10 vision. That's a strong mission-based company that really resonates with me, strong core values. And at level 10, our goal is to accelerate utility scale renewable energy deployment and development by facilitating more efficient, faster, easier, and less risky renewable energy transactions. And so we've created this transaction software and infrastructure for the entire industry to participate in. We have a PPA marketplace, customizable RFP tools. And my role at level 10 is to focus on the seller side, the, the project side. So sort of building upon my roots as a developer, my team supports 400 developer partnerships globally. Developers have the tools they need to participate in our in our transaction software, upload projects, PPA offers onto the PPA marketplace, respond to RFPs, and, and really by bringing the buyers and sellers together in, in the centralized marketplace at level 10, arming them with the tools that they need to transact quickly. That's how we're, we're trying to do our part at level 10 to accelerate the, the clean energy transition. Okay. That's impressive. I knew Level 10 had expanded internationally. I didn't realize you were up to 400 developer partners. That's quite an assemblage of, of project opportunities for buyers to shop. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned that it kind of at your core, you're really drawn to the mission and purpose associated with renewable energy. And one of the interesting things I find about the, this market, Rob, is that I find that very often, and it's what I find really excited about our, our work on smart energy decisions and the respective missions of our organizations are totally aligned. We're, we're both trying to do what we can to accelerate adoption of renewables. It's great to have you here. You mentioned you've been at Level 10 for three years. I was out at your offices a couple of years ago, and so much has happened with the company in a relatively short period of time. Why don't you fill us in on what's gone on at the company in the last 12 to 18 months? Yeah, absolutely. It's been a really, really busy time, and, and the company has grown quite a bit, and, and there's been some evolution since I started in May of 2017. And, you know, even though we all have been working from our homes basically since March, it just feels like we've been even busier and more focused than ever this year. And I think can't have these conversations without talking about COVID. And, and even with COVID, we're just so encouraged because buyers are, are taking a long-term view. They have long-term targets and, and they recognize the need to, to continue to act now. And, and of course, developers are still out there and, and they're actively moving their projects forward. They're, they're needing to get a little bit more creative in how they have public hearings, public meetings for their permitting. They need contingency plans for supply chain disruptions. And I think we all remember that China had some of the earliest COVID cases and it shut down factories, disrupted travel to Southeast Asian countries where, where the manufacturing really takes place. And so, but developers are still pushing these projects forward. And so we've been really busy. One of our big focuses has been expansion into Europe. And so we started here in the US and, and Canada, and then the corporate buyers were coming to us and really demanding that we turn our view to Europe. They said, we've achieved our North American renewable energy targets. You know, what, what can you do for us in Europe? How can you support us there? And so that was really our next logical step. So now when we look back at what we've done with that expansion, we're in 21 countries across both continents. So it's it's definitely been exciting and, and fast and furious. And actually, we've 
we have so many new developer partners and relationships that we've built in Europe. And where I sit at level 10, I'm particularly excited about this. We've actually been able to publish a PPA price index for the last two quarters for Europe. And we've been doing this in North America for I don't know, several years, but now we have that mountain of data, hundreds of projects that are active in Europe to support the type of data analysis that we need to produce those reports. So we've gotten really re excellent reception. It's been going very well so far. We've also released two RFPs for corporate buyers that are credit worthy and experienced. So Europe's been great. In addition, we've been focusing on enhancing our existing tools and, and features to our existing software, uh, better portfolio scenario planning tools that really let buyers come in and, and customize their goals, their renewable energy targets, parameters for their procurement. And we've got some cool RFP enhancements. We've got performance monitoring. So we're letting buyers not just monitor the energy and recs that their projects are producing, but also financial projections, which are really helpful to them and support sort of internal accounting, mark-to-market needs, accruals, et cetera. And I guess the, I guess the last thing I mentioned is we have a new exciting partnerships that we're forging. So we just made an announcement about a partnership. We have a three degrees, the advisor three degrees, and that announcement came out just a few weeks ago. And we're, we're hopeful those there's more exciting news to come. I won't I won't step on my marketing department's toes, but but I think we're really trying to leverage those types of partnerships to to further build both the demand and the supply side of our market. So it's been an exciting time here. Well, you've certainly been busy. I think that strategically, the the partnership with Three Degrees was a really really good good play and good move. The timing of your move to Europe, I think, was spot on. At our renewable energy sourcing forum next week, we've got fifty corporate buyers participating and a full 70% of them are interested in procurement opportunities outside of the US. You know, we asked that question with each of our participant groups and that percentage of corporate buyers interested in global opportunities is growing. So I think the strategy and the timing of of your of your moves is spot on. So Congratulations to you, Bryce, and the rest of the team. Yeah, thank you. All right. Well, we're here to talk about your predictions. And the article you published or blog post, it's titled Five Predictions for Corporate Renewable Energy in 2021. And as this is our last episode of the year, I think this is the perfect time to get into it. So let's talk about each of them one, one at a time. And the first one that you have is kind of close to us at smart energy decisions. So I'm really interested in hearing what you have to say about it. And that first prediction was that so social justice will be a key consideration in renewable energy procurement in 2021. What does that mean exactly for level 10 energy? What, what does social justice in renewable energy procurement mean to the company? Yeah, it's a really great place to start. And I think we kind of have to start here as we're looking to what's going to be important in, in 2021. And just looking back at the events of this year, if there's been any silver lining, just look, searching for some kind of silver lining in, in the tragic events that have involved the, the murders of Black men and women at, at the hands of police, the resulting protests, and embodied in the Black Lives Matter movement, it certainly, and rightly so, it's sharpened our focus and accelerated the industry's focus on social justice and, and impact broadly. Right now, everyone is listening, everyone is paying attention. And so we're really encouraged to see that we're having those conversations internally at, at level 10. And I think 
nearly every company, not just in renewable energy, is also doubling down, recommitting to do their part to advance these critical social justice initiatives. I think that that can obviously take different forms depending on the company, their procurement goals, the industry. The interesting nexus for renewable energy, I think it's particularly acute because it's it's well known that disadvantaged communities, especially communities of color, can be disproportionately impacted by by both climate change, but also local air quality impacts. And renewables provide a solution to both of those. Yet, a lot of those communities don't have the same access to clean energy solutions that others might, and that the corporate space might. And so I think the question for our industry that we're, that we're trying to grapple with is, how can procurement move that ball forward in a meaningful, authentic, and an impactful way? And I think even before the events of this year, corporate buyers were beginning to recognize, I mean, they did recognize that they had the power to influence how projects get developed and ultimately get built. And we, we've just seen that focus really sharpen this year. We've seen Apple, Salesforce, Microsoft come out with really commendable concrete steps that, that I think will move the industry forward. So we're, we're looking at that. We're paying attention. Like I said, I, th- I think these ideas had been percolating. And this year, they've just been drawn to the front burner. These companies, like I mentioned, they recognize that utility scale renewable energy that that they're aiming to transact with, these projects represent hundreds of millions of dollars of investment each in some cases. And those investments can and should serve to benefit local communities, even beyond the inherent benefits of clean energy. Developers for really since the dawn of these projects have talked about the temporary boost to local economy. The local economies have an employment bump. There are ripple effects to ancillary services in the community like hotels, restaurants, et cetera, that gets patronized when these projects are getting built, property tax revenues, lower emissions, et cetera. But the devils are in those details and the project is the same. And the question is, you know, how the developer invests, where they invest, what that developer's business practices are. Those are some of the factors that are coming under scrutiny in the corporate procurement space. And those are the factors that that we're starting to take an even closer look at. Yeah. There are so many dimensions to this topic. I'm curious to have you drill down a little further on what exactly are buyers looking at when it comes to social justice concerns and kind of how that ties into their specific procurement goals and, and projects? Yeah, it's maybe oversimplistic, but you can probably break it into three different categories broadly. The first category that I'd mention is the project specific. How will the project impact the people that project is located? These are things like uh, what kind of community agreements and support has the developer put in place? What sort of training, labor the developer has? Sometimes there are local requirements, but I think what we're talking about here is what is the developer doing that goes beyond simply what's required above and beyond just business as usual? You know, investments in local needs, schools, social services, roads, et cetera. Also thinking about what type of land the project is on. Is it a greenfield forest that's going to need to be cut down or is it on prime farmland or is it on previously disturbed or low grade soils? So so all of these are going to have an impact on on the project specifically and, and how it's viewed. Second one category is how does the developer itself treat its employees? What are its internal business practices, commitments to diversity and inclusion? What labor agreements does it have? Union commitments with third parties, et cetera. And then the, the last bucket, 
that I mentioned is what is what are the upstream and downstream supply chains for the project look like? What materials are they using? If it's a solar project, where do the modules come from? What labor was used to to build those modules? Recently, we've seen allegations of forced labor violations in China that are impacting the polysilicon supply chain. And you know how manufacturers respond, how developers react is going to be important to corporates. And yeah, I've been enc- encouraged just to see trade organizations like SIA kind of out in front on some of those issues. And then also, what does the end of life look like for the project? Recycling, decommissioning plants, et cetera. And, it, and has the developer thought ahead of that? So I would break it into those three categories. I mean, level 10, we have experience working with multiple corporate buyers where these criteria have been important, creating scorecards, weighting those criteria, but we're always learning. And, and I think these are these are evolving as the industry evolves, as we develop, what are the best best-in-class practices. I did just want to mention Salesforce recently produced a pretty interesting white paper on this called More Than a Megawatt. And, and it kind of gives Salesforce's recipe book for how companies can get started. And it actually includes a, a downloadable Excel worksheet that I just encourage listeners to take a look at if, if they want Salesforce's playbook on this. Well, that's great. And we'll make sure to include a link to that Salesforce white paper in the show notes of this episode. Thanks for referencing that. We recently joined a renewable energy industry diversity and inclusion coalition to really try and advance the importance of inspiring more diversity in the renewable energy sector. What are your thoughts on the impact that this move towards social justice and renewables will have on diversity and inclusion in the industry? John, I think that's that is the the key question here and we're encouraged. I'm I'm highly optimistic that what we want here is is to have a positive and lasting impact. And and I think that there's been a moment of self-reflection across the industry and and this necessary recognition that we need to be doing more. We've been having positive conversations. I've participated in several virtual conferences recently where where this has been a, a key topic that has come up on, on a lot of panel discussions. We're having those conversations internally at Level 10, evaluating what we can be doing here, what what part Level 10 can be serving. And so, yeah, we, we are encouraged. John, I, I don't know if the, the group that you're referring to is the Renewables Forward organization, but that's certainly something we've been following and, and tracking as well. And, you know, I'm, I'm encouraged by the four pillars that, that they've laid out of how they want to move things and advance things, just establishing a baseline, assessing the diversity of the industry now, creating toolkits, taking steps to to build out a more diverse pipeline of candidates. All, all of that is just really, really critical. So we're, we're eager to see what what that organization, Renewables Forward, does in, in some of its first, first actions. I think it was formed relatively recently in September, October timeframe. Really, what can we be doing that's meaningful, as I mentioned before, that has this lasting impact and what is authentic and not just lip service. We need to take these conversations and, and advance them. So that's the big question. That's what we're all trying to solve. I, I think what we've seen from these corporates is them putting those conversations into motion. Yeah, that's a great point. And at our last event, the session we had on inspiring diversity and energy, the the theme was turning commitments into action because you can endorse a set of principles and you could subscribe to a philosophy, but it's really about what are you going to do to make a difference. I feel good about the traction and focus that the industries bring into this 
very important topic. And I think you having that number one on your list is, is right on. Smart Energy Voices is opening advertising slots for season two in 2021. Your company could be featured in this ad slot next year and reach our audience of engaged listeners all striving to make smart energy decisions. If you're interested in partnering with us, please see the show notes for more details. So, Rob, your second prediction is that more companies will follow Google's lead and aim to become 100% renewable at at all times, renewable energy 24-7. Tell us a little more about what that means exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think this is going to be another big topic for for next year. We have heard a lot about 24-7 renewables. This is another topic that seems to be popping up on on a lot of the virtual conference panels. I mean, everyone seems to be nodding along while also kind of scratching their heads and asking themselves, okay, well, how is this actually going to work when it comes down to brass tacks? And and I think there are still more questions than answers. And, and even the companies like the Googles that are taking a leadership role here are recognizing that that we probably have more questions than answers at, at this time. One nuance and distinction that I would just call out here is I've heard the conversation revolve around and focus on carbon-free, 24-7 carbon-free versus renewables. And I, th- I think that's a slight distinction, but probably an important one, especially when you think about the resource mix. Because when you, when you shift from pure renewable to carbon-free, then you're starting to bring in a nuclear biomass storage, a whole other range that typically isn't captured when corporates are just thinking about renewables, which is generally wind and solar. And so I just wanted to make that that kind of distinction because I think it's an important one. And then also maybe, John, just for listeners not as sort of versed or following the, the daily headlines and the implications of, of 24-7 and maybe asking themselves, well, hasn't Google and some of these other large tech companies, aren't they already 100% renewable? Didn't they do that a while ago? The answer to that is is yes, they have reached 100% renewable goals. Many of them have done it ahead of schedule, but companies can claim to be 100% renewable by matching their energy consumption with enough environmental attributes, whether those are RECs or, or GEOs like in Europe, to cover their consumption on an annual basis. And that's very different than just an hourly basis because, of course, renewables are intermittent. And so f- for a company to match annually, if they're going to have some hours where they're short, some hours where they're long renewable energy, where they're actually producing more renewable energy than they're consuming. But on those short hours, they're going to be relying on that grid mix. And that grid mix of resources in most places are still heavily fossil-based. Also to note, the companies that are interested in going to this 24-7 carbon-free approach are taking kind of a regional grid-based approach. And so maybe stating the obvious here, but we're not talking about renewables tied in directly to their facilities. These companies are still looking at virtual power purchase agreements offsite. But the point is that on this regional basis, could be defined as a country, could be a specific electricity grid. The Googles and and others are looking for a 24-7 hour by hour carbon-free match. And Google's actually done in terms of maybe interesting articles to link to here. Google's done some, certainly some thought leadership work 
And they recently published a kind of a follow-on white paper to something they published, I think back in 2017 or 18, that looks at how Google is going to get to 24-7 carbon-free by 2030. And there are some pretty cool visuals that they've put together. They have these carbon clocks that that show how much of each data center in each region is supplied by carbon-free energy, kind of reveals the opportunities, but also the challenges, showing a lot of the regional variations. And it shows that in some places, it's going to be quite hard getting to that point of well, there's probably more questions than answers. And, and there's definitely going to be regional nuances to, to that. Just to pull out a couple more things in that, that Google paper, they recognize that in terms of solutions, they're going to have to look at a much broader portfolio of technology options, not just wind and solar. Like I mentioned, carbon freeze, they're going to be looking at nuclear biomass start, storage. All of those are on the table. They also they showed some interesting results actually in that white paper of a portfolio of wind and solar in Chile, where they're coming pretty close to an hourly match, but they're not quite there. Getting that last mile is going to be hard. Google's collaborating with utilities on um, things like green tariffs, retail sleeves, et cetera. And they're also looking at aggregation. So how can they enable multiple buyers to share in the benefits of, of renewable energy projects? I know I'm going a little long here, but it's really interesting stuff that Google's doing. An interesting side note, I think, is that they're actually investing in software that can shift their data center demand. So they're not just looking at, you know, how can they buy more renewables and different types of renewables, but how can they actually lower their demand and shift their demand to times on the grid that are less carbon intensive. So something that really only Google and maybe a small handle handful of others that can do that. But I think it's, I think it's pretty cool. So folks should definitely check out that, that white paper. Yeah, there's a lot there to unpack. We definitely want to link to that Google paper that you referenced because we'll include that in the show notes. I guess this notion of real time is key. What I find fascinating is once these innovators achieve their goals, they look to go even to the next level. And I think this whole notion of the goalposts kind of moving from renewable energy targets to carbon emission reduction targets is fascinating. And once it enters that arena, then it is, it's a whole combination of supply and demand side tactics to get you there with a broader set of technologies beyond just what is typically classified as renewables. Rob, you mentioned that Google can do it, a couple of other folks can do it. I mean, how practical is this really for for companies to consider? Is this the type of thing that everyone can aspire to achieve? Or is there really a a limited universe of companies that could look at being 100% renewable 100% of the time? Yeah, I I think it's really going to come down to the the CNI corporate buyer, and each buyer is going to have their own targets and what it means for themselves to to go to renewable energy. And I think for some, 24-7 carbon-free, 24-7 renewables, it's going to be possible, but but maybe not all, at least not on the same timeline that Google and, and Apple and Microsoft. But I think the hope is that the tech companies that want to go in the direction are going to pave a path for others who believe 24-7 carbon-free is the right approach to follow in their footsteps. So again, a lot of unknowns on what that path is going to look like and how the large tech companies are going to chart it. It's going to require technology innovation. Like I mentioned, it it may be expensive for the first pioneers to do it. But I think one, one of the pieces that I did want to note is I think what's encouraging for us is that there are some solutions out there and and that level 10 actually has some solutions for how to support companies like Google that have those goals, 
we've been pioneering new type of portfolio solutions for for quite some time, really since the beginning. And we we had some announcements last year supporting buyers like Starbucks to structure portfolios, not only to match their distributed retail load, if you think of a, of a Starbucks, but also to blend in different types of technologies, different geographies. We've worked on aggregations. We have a buyer group aggregation where we've worked with five different corporate buyers, Salesforce, actually Gap, Cox Enterprises, Workday, and Bloomberg. And they each took an equal slice of a much larger project to achieve their goals. And actually on I guess Thursday of this week, participating in a virtual ribbon cutting for, for that project. So that's pretty exciting. So we've, we have experience with portfolios, aggregations, and then we've also worked with the load serving entities that are you know, folks like Google and, and other large tech companies are looking to to provide more kind of utility-based solutions. We've worked with community choice aggregators in California, as, as well as competitive RAPs that have green retail products. But I guess taking a step back, I think what's important is that whether it's 24-7 or there's a first-time PPA buyers, like buyers just need to come to the table and take action. I think the goal here for all of us is just more renewables faster. And so 24 seven might be the solution. It's definitely a worthy cause. It's gonna be a part of the 2021 conversation and beyond, but I guess I don't want folks to make the perfect the enemy of the good. Don't get stuck in that paralysis through analysis. Let's just make sure that folks are taking action, meaningful action now. As many buyers that are that are on the sidelines, we wanna bring them into the game. And that's sort, of, that's sort of our collective job to do. I'm so glad you said that, Rob because the worst thing that could happen is that the leading innovators, they get so far ahead that for the people who are just getting on stream, there's this certain sense of, oh my goodness, I'll never be able to accomplish that. I think that the soundbite or the quote that I just wrote down here, come to the table and take action. I think that's a that's kind of a battle cry that everybody should subscribe to. And no matter what your level of sophistication is in this journey, it's all about taking that next step. And the more we get into these topics, Rob, I think we could do an episode on each of these five predictions because <laughs> you introduced the whole topic of aggregation, which, oh, you know, my goodness, we can really get into that in, in a lot more detail. But let's move on to your third prediction, which I think is is also one of the big, big themes for 2021. And that is that more companies will commit to reducing scope three emissions through supply chain programs. It's a huge topic that's been addressed at our events. It'll be addressed at our Renewable Energy Sourcing Forum next week. What's your take on this whole movement, if you will? Yeah, yeah, no doubt there, John, and I'm glad it's going to be a focus of the event. Supply chains are, are going to be an important one for 2021. They're already getting a lot of airtime and looking out over that horizon, I think it's only going to increase. You know, before we dive into scope three specifically, quickly setting the stage, recapping what organizations are doing, the scope one, two, three emissions, just for clarity here, the scope one emissions, these are these are emissions that a company's operations have, on-site industrial facilities, fuel use. A lot of companies that need to produce steam or heat for their operations have scope one emissions. And so they're looking at equipment upgrades, using alternative fuels, gas instead of oil or coal, energy efficiency measures that are that are on-site, very focused on on-site. Scope two, that's what we're that's what we're talking about in the, the PPA VPPA world. Scope two emissions are those that are caused by a company's purchase of electricity. And so they're looking at whether it's on-site or off-site PPAs, whether they're physical or financial, that's how they're looking to tackle their scope too. 
And then you get to scope three. And these are the emissions from a company's supply chain. So sort of those, those embedded emissions in the products that the, the company needs to create their own products. And as you can probably imagine, these are the most difficult for a corporate to, to really control because in many times they're inherently outside of their control. So it's hard to control. It's hard to reduce. You know, one maybe tangible example is just to think about Apple and the semiconductors they use. The semiconductor manufacturers are within Apple's supply chain, and so they are part of Apple's scope three emissions. The further challenge is that for a lot of corporate buyers like the Apple, scope three are the largest source. And so they're not only out of their control, they're not only hard to reduce, but they're the largest area. And I think the statistic is Apple's scope three emissions make up 75% of its overall emissions footprint. It is a daunting challenge. I think the the positive news though is that folks like Apple, folks like Walmart, Microsoft, they've all made commitments to evaluate, manage, and reduce their scope through emissions. They've created special supplier programs. One of the most well-known ones even outside of the renewable procurement space is Walmart's Project Gigaton. Apple has made waves recently. I was just looking at Trade Press and there was, a, I guess it was earlier this summer, there were headlines of one of Apple's suppliers contracted for somewhere between 800 and 900 megawatts from an offshore wind project in Taiwan that Orsted is developing. So just massive procurement. I think it was, I think it's one of the largest single corporate PPAs out there. So definitely some exciting news there. John, I was also listening to an earlier podcast where you had a guest from Honda on and they were talking about their supply chain sustainability efforts. That was a fascinating conversation. So definitely there's going to be a lot more work done here. There's going to be in 2021, a lot of focus on this. And we're really excited and encouraged that some of these early initiatives are starting to bear fruit and give those examples to others that want to address their scope three emissions. Yeah. Well, the Honda example you brought up is a great one and they've been at it for 10 years. I was really surprised to see how advanced it is. And you know, you've touched on so many elements of this issue, one being that the percentage of emissions represented by supply chain really does vary by industry. You referenced Apple at 75%. I know at Walmart, I think it's in excess of two-thirds. You know, the entire retail industry, so much of their related emissions are kind of tied to the products that they sell in, in their stores. So for some, just getting their arms around what that's involved is a challenge. So if, if there are large power users on the episode listening to this, wanting to get started, what do some of these supply chain programs look like? What do they entail, Rob? Yeah. So Level 10 has been doing a lot of thinking about this and understanding of how we can support our buyers that want to tackle their scope through emissions. I think a lot of this just comes down to education and support. So Big corporate buyers that have large supply chains with scope through emissions, they're going to have to, you know, sort of put these programs in place to bring their suppliers up that learning curve that they themselves have come from. Alyssa, I think it was from Honda, talked a lot about building trust with suppliers. And I really like how she spoke about building trust with suppliers. That's obviously key here. And I think, you know, one of the, maybe it's a challenge, maybe it's an opportunity, but a lot of the corporate buyers that, that are responsible for the procurements that, that make the headlines, they have substantial elements of their business that are B2C, right? So they have retail consumers like you and me as their customers, very sort of public facing household names. Their suppliers don't necessarily have that. They don't have as much of a public presence. Therefore, they haven't had maybe as much 
of that external pressure to move towards renewable energy, clean energy buying. So they're just they're just not as experienced. They haven't been in that game for for as long as the corporates with the supply chains have been. So I think it's you know sharing those key learnings, educating their suppliers on the PPA process if that's the the path that they're going to go down. And I think there's also a big role in in the corporate buyers connecting their suppliers with the right solutions, with the energy developers, and really pairing them with a solution that's that's right and that's going to meet their goals. We've also seen large corporates advocating on the policy side of things. So how can they kind of break new ground with local governments, state governments, regional governments to, en- to enable options for their suppliers? And I think the last one, just to circle back on the topic of aggregation, that's certainly going to play a role here. We've seen some of the large corporates almost serving as, a, as an anchor tenant or endeavoring to serve as an anchor tenant so that their suppliers can participate in that same project. And whether that's providing credit support or the other benefits that an anchor tenant can do to enable other smaller buyers to participate. I think that's a great way for the corporates. So if they're doing that, they're not only achieving their scope three by bringing their suppliers in, but also their scope two. So sort of proverbial two, two birds, one stone. And so we, we know that here at level 10, we've, we've facilitated those types of aggregation deals. We know that our partners are really interested in, and, and we're seeing a lot of growth in that space. So just to, I guess, recap, education, support, and I love what Alyssa said about trust in the suppliers. I think that's how we move this ball forward. Man, you hit the nail on the head. There is so much of what I hear in conversation with large corporate buyers who are wrestling with this that you've touched on. And you know that trust piece is really key, right? Because the suppliers have to share data and there's always a question mark as to how that data is going to be used and getting to the point where suppliers will share data freely with you is a huge challenge. And that was, you know, one of the things I was fascinated to hear about in the Honda example, how they've gotten that done. But you clearly get it and you've got your finger on the pulse of kind of what the issues are to successfully develop these programs. And Hopefully, we'll look forward to writing about some aggregation deals in the future that you put together at Level 10. So, okay, let's move on to the next prediction, and that is that more corporates will enter into agreements with storage projects. Everyone's waiting for storage to really take off, and it's like, come on already. (laughs) So why do you think that storage will become more, more important next year, Rob? Yeah, no, I'm, I hear you. Uh, storage is fascinating. I think everyone recognizes it's going to be a part, an important part of the clean energy future. It feels like it's the next frontier. I think it is the next frontier. We see it in the headlines. Most of the buying activity has been on the utility and load serving entity side. So utilities that need to manage their grid, load serving entities that have maybe a capacity or a resource adequacy requirement, they're out there buying a lot of storage. We see storage coming into to grids like Kaiso and Ericot. And so they're investing in, you know, for transmission cost deferral or avoidance. There's actually a pretty interesting article going over to Australia, but there's an interesting article in Australia and Neowen's developing a project that is basically serving, it's a, it's a battery project that's basically serving as a transmission project. And it's really fascinating how the utilities and the grid operators are looking at transmission for that kind of solution. And, and again, there, there's also in a lot of places just regulatory requirements. You know, that's part of what we're seeing in the demand in areas of the Northeast and places like California. But I think because of all that buying activity, 
corporates are starting to take notice and they're starting to look at storage and, and ask themselves, okay, how can we take advantage of these alleged benefits that storage has? Alleged is probably not the right word, but, but they're sort of looking and, and asking themselves, how can they participate? And to clarify here, when I talk about storage, when we think about storage, we're not talking about like Tesla power walls behind the meter, peak shaving, reduction of capacity demand charges that a lot of corporate entities have been have been doing. You know, they're they're doing solar rooftop and then a on-site battery. We're talking about front of the meter grid scale storage. But I think even there, right, the corporates are starting to look and say, okay, how can we benefit from this? What role do we have to play? But the deals have been limited. They have really been limited in, in the deals, the corporate storage deals that have been announced. Just a small handful. Level 10 has had the privilege of supporting one that has, fingers crossed, it has yet to be announced, but fingers crossed will be announced um, shortly. But I think in 2021, my hope, our hope is that we're going to see that tide shift. And we're going to see that tide shift from buyers that have renewable energy portfolios that are seeking to to blend in storage because of the inherent sort of benefit that storage can have in a renewable energy portfolio. I think without an existing renewable energy portfolio, corporate buyers, you know, storage doesn't have inherent recs associated with it. It doesn't have inherent environmental attributes, right? So it's going to be those type of buyers that are going to be participating in storage. And storage has come down in cost. There have been significant cost declines that we've seen over the last couple of years. There's been consolidation around lithium ion. I was looking at a stat the other day. I think lithium ion is now 90% of the market. So the costs are there. We've been tracking those costs and Lazard every year now has a has an annual report that focuses on storage costs, costs. And you can just see those decline over time. And then also there's value that storage has, especially in markets like California. We all know about what's happened in that wholesale market with the duck curve because there's so much solar. Storage is a, is a perfect complement to that. And so there's that, you know, even though there's the challenge with the duck curve with solar, that's an opportunity for storage. And so in a properly structured contract, how can a corporate benefit for that? I guess the the last thing that I'd say, and this is circling back, I think it was prediction number two, we talked about 24-7 carbon-free energy, right? Storage can extend the time of day when corporates can, can have that clean energy delivered by storing clean energy at those times when maybe their projects are overproducing and discharging that energy at a later time, they can get closer to that 24-7 carbon-free mix. I actually don't think you can get there without storage. So that's going to be, I think it has to be a big part of the 24-7 carbon-free plan as well. There's a lot of exciting stuff happening in the storage front. So it's interesting, you distinguish between kind of behind the meter and front of the meter. Where do you see most of the storage development taking place now? Yeah, you know, our world is really front of the meter. So we're seeing a lot of the storage, and I think in terms of probably megawatts and megawatt hours of capacity, we're seeing it offsite. Most of the projects that are under development that, that we've seen have also been co-located with mostly solar, but sometimes wind projects as well. That With solar, that of course allows the developer to take advantage of the investment tax credit benefit that comes along with pairing storage with solar. But I think down the road, we're going to see more and more of that grid scale standalone storage. We are seeing this deployed in places like California and in Texas, where the economics are there or where the regulatory structures are there. But our world is really offsite and we're seeing just a ton of exponential growth in that space. And as I mentioned, Level 10 has, has we have done some exciting work in storage contracting, and hopefully we can share more news on that before the end of the year. 
Well, let's go on the record here, Rob. I want you sharing that news with Smart Energy Decisions first. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to put you on the spot to commit to that, but this is the official ask. We want to be first with that story. (laughs) Seriously, you distinguish between front of the meter, behind the meter. A lot of the people listening to this episode are going to be C&I customers. How do C&I customers kind of hook into front of the meter projects? Because by and large, they've been having a hard time making behind the meter projects pay out. Yeah, I think front of the meter projects, you're going to have to get maybe more creative on the contracting structure. There's definitely an element, a financial benefit element to properly cited and properly contracted front of the meter storage projects. Again, just getting getting back to a point I made before, it's really going to be those corporates that have a portfolio of renewable energy PPAs. Maybe they've done a solar deal in California. And so they have some exposure to that, that duck curve, those low prices midday when their solar project is producing. Maybe their settlements aren't as favorable as they thought. And, and there are ways that they can pull in storage contracts, whether the, the storage is co-located with the project or it could be offsite and structure that contract in such a way that they can take advantage of the arbitrage value and and the financial value that's in that duck curve that storage operators otherwise would be taking advantage of. So that's that's where we see it. Again, I think there's going to be some creativity on how the contracts are structured. And I think it and I think it has to be for the right corporate, but for the right corporate and the right structure, it, it does make a lot of sense and at least the way we're evaluating it. Okay. Well I'm totally aligned and on board with storage being a hot topic and big prediction in corporate renewables next year. So finally, your your last prediction, Rob, is, is the need for speed will drive innovation in the renewable energy sector. What exactly do you mean by that? Yeah, good question. Good, good to drill into on this one. I think for most CNI buyers, renewable energy procurement, offsite projects, it's obviously not their core business. So what they're they're really looking for in a procurement process is something that's efficient, something that's seamless through their buying experience. They, of course, want something that's rigorous and fully de-risked, but after working to get their management on board, bought into a PPA, the last thing that they want is for that deal then to take years to actually get done. And plus, you know, a lot of corporates have set really aggressive 2030 goals. And even though that date seems like it, well, it is 10 years in the future, it's going to be here really soon, particularly if you step back and recognize that Renewables projects take many years, four, five, six, sometimes longer to develop. And that corporates contract for these projects, sometimes several years before they come online. And so we have to start laying that foundation where if corporates are going to meet those 2030 goals, they need to act quickly now. And I think a lot of companies are realizing that. We've also observed just the pace of PPAs concentrated, I think, in a lot of the the tech giant renewable energy buyers, but also with utilities, incumbent utilities, just the pace of PPAs has really accelerated. And it seems like some buyers just can't can't even sign deals fast enough. And so, of course, at you know, level 10, we're trying to enable all of that through our transaction infrastructure and software solutions to really drive that acceleration, simplify the transaction process. There's really no other option for corporates. Yeah. So the demand's clearly accelerating. And, you know, you mentioned these deals almost can't get done fast enough. What in your view is is kind of slowing down the process for renewable energy procurement? 
Yeah, well, the, there's certainly the interest, there's certainly the desire. And then I think actually getting the deal done where that rubber is meeting the road can sometimes be a barrier for first-time PPA buyers. Getting their their finance and, and legal teams to approve can sometimes take months, years in extreme cases. But I think compounding that challenge is, you kind of alluded to this, John, but it's the experienced buyers getting so advanced and knowing exactly what they want that they're able to move really swiftly. They're able to contract for renewables really, really quickly. They know what they want. They have the buying power. So for the newer buyers, time just is not on their side. And (laughs) unfortunately, time can often kill deals or we've seen in some cases cause a developer to seek a buyer that can move more quickly. And so we're, of course, recognizing that challenge. We're getting to our mission and to our roots here at Level 10, which, like I just mentioned, is to accelerate that clean energy transaction, taking that friction out, bringing buyers together in our, in our centralized marketplace. So I think it's actually, this is a real opportunity for an organization like Level 10 to bring our solutions to bear. And then I think even if a buyer can move fast, Sometimes finding the right project is another challenge and increasingly so in some markets, which just feeds back into what I mentioned before, where it seems like some buyers can't sign PPAs fast enough. We're seeing actually increasingly a a shortage of supply in certain markets, which is just adding another layer of complexity and challenge, especially for those first-time buyers. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting that you referenced that, Rob. Bloomberg came out with a Report. I think it was just late last week where they've kind of mapped the supply that will be needed to match all the renewable energy commitments that are coming on stream. And there's a point in a not too distant future where the two lines on that chart cross and demand exceeds supply. It's really fascinating to watch. You see also the additional pressure that's being brought to bear in terms of ESG finance, where companies, the access to capital for companies is going to be reduced tremendously if they don't have meaningful sustainability programs in place. So when you add that as a corporate driver, it's pretty clear that the demand is going to continue to accelerate. And you know, you said, well, 10 years seems like a long time, but we're going to be pushing up against deadlines as this demand accelerates, as we get closer to deadlines. Do you think the market could transform from a buyer's market to a seller's market. Yeah, excellent observation. And we are definitely seeing that dynamic play out in some markets, really in front of our eyes. And just a sort of a, a call to action, I think renewable energy buyers out there should be aware that we are seeing that pendulum shift. And some have gotten very comfortable with, with it being a, a buyer's market, but as more CNI buyers with aggressive targets, as more utilities, as more state and, and local governments commit to renewable energy, there's going to be the shift that we're seeing to much more of a, a seller's market. It's also important to note, I, I mentioned utilities. If you look at a grid like PJM, AEP, Dominion, these large incumbent utilities have active solicitations right now for renewable energy. And they are absorbing a lot of the competitive projects that are out there. And they have commitments. Utilities are now making commitments almost independent of any kind of regular regulatory requirement to be carbon-free by whether it's 2035, 2040, 2050, but much earlier than I think anyone expected. As a result, we're actually seeing this play out in level 10's data, is that even though we fully expect renewables will continue to be 
extremely cost competitive form of generation, we still expect PPA prices are going to rise in the foreseeable future. I mentioned at the top of our conversation here, our PPA price index, and we see this in the data. So we've released our last PPA price index sometime in October for Q3. And just to pull out a couple nuggets from that report, we saw PPA prices on the rise for both wind and solar projects. And in North America here, solar prices rose over the last two quarters, and they had previously been dropping continuously for about six quarters. So that was pretty interesting. We also saw that for solar, the average price index now surpasses the previous high back in Q3 2018. Again, after Q3 2018, prices sort of started coming down. And then if you look at wind and solar comparing each other, we take a P25 index, which is kind of a heuristic ballpark of the more competitive prices. So a P25 index of wind offers compared to solar, wind has always been lower, but actually for the first time this last quarter, it rose above the solar index. So that was pretty interesting to see. So we're seeing very interesting things play out in the data. And we expect that if you look at production tax credit, investment tax credit, roll-offs, glide paths over the next couple of years, as those decrease, we do expect that prices will, will continue to rise. But yeah, I mean, I think the key takeaway here is that, especially for corporations with publicly stated maybe 20, 30 goals or sooner, there is a benefit from acting quickly, locking in contracts and, and moving as quickly as possible from a, just an economic standpoint, but also not to use the cliche too much here, but you know, the climate won't wait. And, and I think that's really, really critical for bringing those buyers to the table. Well, I'll tell you what, it, this was a, a quote of yours earlier in the conversation that I think is just a great kind of finishing point, which is come to the table and take action. It's, it's really kind of time is of the essence. And no matter where you are in your journey, I think taking action is what's key. And I think, Rob, and you've already published your predictions for 2021, so we can't add one, but I'd like to suggest that you put this in the top drawer for one of the predictions for 2022, and that is utilities impact on the renewable energy market accelerates. Utilities are going from being laggards in this whole transition to being very aggressive participants. And I think that going into 2022, we're going to see that really take hold. Yeah. Well, Rob, listen, I can't thank you enough for the insights. You really came to the conversation prepared with a lot of data also, which I really appreciate. There are going to be some resources we're going to be able to share with our listeners. There's the Salesforce paper, the Google paper, and that makes the episode and the show notes a, a great resource for our community. So thank you very much. I certainly hope all these predictions bear fruit and I'll definitely be keeping an eye on level 10 energy to kind of see what you have up your sleeve next. I'm telling you, I want to be first on that storage story. <laughs> <laughs> definitely talk to our marketing team about that. <laughs> <laughs> But we know that there are lots of exciting things in store for you, your colleagues, and the company. To our listeners, thanks for listening and being a part of the Smart Energy Decisions community. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, leave us a review, and tell your colleagues and peers about it. We're excited about sharing conversations like these with leaders in the energy transition at Smart Energy Voices on our website and at our events, all in the interest 
of helping you make smart energy decisions. Thank you and have a great day. Thanks for listening to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Digest the insights from today's episode and take action on the ideas that have inspired you. Join us every Friday for conversations with smart energy leaders. We also invite you to check out another SED podcast, Beyond the Meter. Each episode of Beyond the Meter features innovative energy projects and initiatives by large electric power users. To keep up to date with trends and happenings in the energy transition, visit smartenergydecisions.com to register for our daily newsletter and become part of the Smart Energy Decisions community.